0: Hey, Ness.
1: Hey, Em. Um. So have you ever suffered from migraine?
0: Um, Only a couple of times have I had one in my life. It was when I was really, really young. But something that kind of drew me to today's guest, Kelly Yates, is that I've noticed a lot of my friends have issues with migraine this year who have maybe even never had it before, And I think it's just kind of due to that general 2020 stress that we've all been under. And it's clearly manifesting in the way of migraine for a lot of people. So I think this guest will be very timely that we have today.
1: Yeah, I was going to say from talking to Kelly, it seems like stress is a big trigger. And 2020 has had a ton of stress. And 2021 is following suit a bit.
0: So let's get into it. Welcome to Wellness Myths. Today we have Kelly Yates here. She's a private practice dietitian that specializes in migraine and gut health. She was inspired to pursue natural interventions for migraine after dealing with her own diagnosis for over two decades and knowing medications could not be the only solution. She currently lives just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, with her husband David and three cats. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Hi, Kelly. We're so excited to have you on today. I wanted to start with, so I'm guessing a lot of our listeners, if they're tuning in today specifically to listen about migraines, they might suffer from migraines or they probably at least know what they are, but I just want to make it clear for anyone who isn't so sure, can you tell us what a migraine is?
2: Of course, yeah. I'll go into kind of the definition and then I'll throw a few stats in there just for fun. So migraine, and I have to correct most people, so please don't feel bad, but we refer to it as migraine instead of migraines, and that's a more recent change in language and how we speak about migraine. We've changed it to migraine because it is a neurological condition that we have 24-7, those of us who have migraine. It's characterized by you know that intense head pain, which is probably the first thing you think of when you think of migraine, but there are actually a lot of other symptoms that can come along with it that you may experience during an actual migraine episode or attack, but also in between attacks. So these can be things like nausea, vomiting, trouble speaking, even numbness and tingling, sensitivity to light and sound. And then there's also different forms of migraine. One of them is vestibular migraine. So you experience a lot of like dizziness or motion sickness, things like that. It's A much more diverse condition than a lot of people realize when they first think of migraine, but there are actually a lot of different symptoms that can come with it. And it is actually the third most prevalent illness in the world and the sixth most disabling condition in the world. So it has a really big impact.
1: And I know you mentioned there's a lot of manifestations of migraine. Mm -hmm. Most people think of head pain Have you had anyone who suffers from the other symptoms and doesn't get the head pain? Yeah,
2: so that's a good question. A lot of people who have the vestibular migraine, they may not always have head pain with their episodes or they may never experience head pain. And then there's also something called silent migraine, which, um, you know, will include some of those other symptoms, but not the head pain itself. And then there's abdominal migraine, which is more common in children which again, you know, the head pain part of it isn't the most prevalent symptom, it's more those, you know, abdominal pain symptoms.
1: I think mm. a lot of people just think of your head. Or at sure. least people who don't suffer from from migraine. I'm really having to be careful to say migraine yeah. without the s. It's kind of hard. I still mess <laughs> up. So, it's fine. <laughs> so, what's the most common conventional treatment for migraine?
2: That a lot of times depends on the severity and the frequency of somebody's migraine episodes. So if someone has what they call episodic migraine, so if it's less than 15 migraine days a month, then sometimes they will only be given an acute treatment. So for some people, they can still get by with over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or Excedrin migraine. But then some people need prescription medications. One of the most common classes are called triptans, and those are kind of one of our standbys when it comes to acute migraine care. And then for people who either are, you know, significantly impacted by their migraine and or they have chronic migraine, so more than 15 migraine days a month, they will be given a preventative. And there are a lot of preventatives out there. Some are pills, some are injections, uh, some are not, you know, they weren't created for migraine like Botox, but they seem to be effective for it. And then there are, you know, a lot of new treatments coming out in the last few years that are migraine specific, which is better.
1: And did you or do you suffer from migraine yourself? Is that how you got into this particular field?
2: Yeah, it is. So I have migraine myself. I've um, had it, I mean, honestly, for as long as I can remember, but at least, you know, two decades or so. But yeah, that's how I got interested in this space. And it's really, you know, like you mentioned in the intro, I was starting to go down the path of medications, which there's nothing wrong with that. And I still take acute prescription medications when I need them, but I just wasn't being given any other options. And as someone who was already studying dietetics, I thought, you know, there's got to be some way I can approach this from, you know, nutrition and lifestyle and even maybe supplements And there was, so that's, that's kind of what got me interested in pursuing this as a career path.
1: And have you found that with clients, do you have clients that start getting migraine out of the blue or do a lot of them suffer from an early age or is there an event that might cause um, that to start happening?
2: Ooh, so yes to all of those, (laughs) those can all be true for different people. And migraine can really begin at any time, whether you're, you know, a child or it's more common to onset between, um, you know, childhood to early adulthood. But I mean, really, at any age, it can start happening for someone. But it can be triggered either just by things like puberty. This is a little bit more common for females. It can be triggered by some sort of traumatic event. So whether that's physical or emotional trauma, these can both kind of trigger migraine onset. And then there's some theories that hormonal birth control can actually trigger migraine onset as well. So lots of different things can bring up migraine in someone who's predisposed.
1: Yeah. Emily and I were actually just talking about hormonal birth control causing migraine before you got mm. on the call. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, sure. And and this is an area that I've been getting more in depth with just recently, I've been more into gut health and how that impacts migraine, but hormones are linked with gut health and it, it's all kind of connected. So hormonal birth control is actually, I didn't mention, but it, it can be one of the treatments prescribed for migraine. We have a term called hormonal migraine or menstrual migraine, and that's used for someone who feels like their symptoms are linked with certain parts of their menstrual cycle. So sometimes their doctor will give them you know, birth control to help, you know, suppress those symptoms and it, it may or may not work. But some people notice that either once they begin taking hormonal birth control or once they go off of it, if they go off of it, then that may actually trigger the onset of their migraine. So it's, it's very individual because, you know, birth control affects us all differently depending on our, our personal chemistry that that can be a contributing factor for some people.
0: That's really interesting, Kelly, because I've had a friend that right now was just experiencing migraine for, I believe, like just started happening to her and her physician right away had told her to get off the birth control that she was taking. Oh, wow. -hmm. Yeah. I don't know exactly why. I think maybe there was like, I don't know if there was another test or something, but they were just saying that it was risky to be on it. Oh, and I wonder if um, I'll mention this because I think it's
2: important. I don't know if that was her situation, but people who have migraine with aura. So um, the most common aura is you know, visual disturbances. So they'll see lights or colors or kind of TV static, things like that. People who have migraine or- with aura shouldn't be put on combination hormonal birth control, because it can increase the risk of stroke. So that, Uh, uh, yeah, that's a big one that, you know, people's doctors don't always ask them if they have migraine if they don't already know.
0: So sometimes people are kind of blindsided by that when they find out. Yeah. that's. I think that's what happened with hers. Yeah. I had known actually quite a few people this year who hadn't really had migraine before, and then all of a sudden started getting really debilitating ones. I don't know if you've yeah. seen that in your practice. I
2: have. I saw a big increase in migraine symptoms in the past year, and I don't think that's too surprising considering <laughs> what all happened to everyone in the past year. But yeah, stress is a huge migraine trigger.
1: Yeah. Everything that's been happening in our world seems like it could trigger just about anything right now. So. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So do you know um, if migraines are more common in men or women?
2: Yeah. So as far as, you know, the statistics tell us, migraine is more than twice more likely to happen in women. So I think about 20%, 18 to 20% of women in the US have migraine, whereas it's less than 10% for men. Although, you know, stats always have a little bit of wiggle room for error. And it may just be that women are more likely to go to the doctor for their symptoms than men. But it's still a pretty big gap. And there is such a strong link with those female hormones and migraine. So we do still think that it's more likely to happen in women.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. That's, like you said, that's a pretty big gap.
2: hmm Yeah. And then children, of course, can also experience migraine. And sometimes it does go away um, once they reach adulthood. But about 10% of children also experience migraine.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that because literally just before we started mm-hmm. recording, Vanessa and I were saying how I used to get them when I was really young. Yeah, I don't even really remember like realizing that at the time, but I remember I just had to be in a really dark room and my eyes would be really sensitive and feel very strained and I would get the abdominal symptoms. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's that's migraine. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I think that my mom had that as well. And then she had told me, oh, I just grew out of it. So hopefully you will, too. And then I ended up I mean, I never got one again. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it definitely, it does run in families. Um, It's thought that there's a really large genetic component to
0: migraine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I never knew that one. Um, Okay. So my question is how do food sensitivities relate to migraine? Because I hear this often and I know that food sensitivity testing can be a little controversial. So I would love to hear your take on that.
2: Yeah, I love to talk about this. So the first thing that I just want to make the distinction of, and this can get a little bit confusing, but there when we talk about migraine, you know, food allergies could potentially contribute to symptoms, although probably not as significantly. But we were really talking about food sensitivities and then food triggers. And these are two different things. Food triggers are more foods that kind of act on the nervous system for someone who has migraine, whereas food sensitivities, which is what you asked me about, act more on the immune system. So they can both contribute, but they are kind of two separate things. But with food sensitivities, the the role that they play is that they contribute to what we call our trigger load. So for someone with migraine, they kind of have their own unique migraine threshold where if they experience enough triggers throughout the day or throughout the week, they eventually will cross over that threshold, and that's when they experience a, a migraine episode. So food sensitivities can act as a, a trigger for someone, and they can also contribute to other issues like inflammation and kind of be an indicator that there's an underlying issue that itself may be making your migraine worse, like um, dysbiosis or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do people typically um, have an idea of what they're sensitive to already? Is it something that's apparent or? Ooh, so that one's a hard one. Uh, yeah. Food
2: triggers. So the, the ones that kind of act more on your nervous system, those tend to be easier to pin down, although not always. And easy is probably not the right word to, to use. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. food sensitivities are a lot more difficult because the the reaction can happen, you know, if 30 minutes to an hour after you eat the food, or even a, a day or two after you eat the food. So it's really challenging to pin it down without using some sort of testing. And even better using someone like myself, like a dietitian, who can help you sort through the testing and help you work through an elimination and reintroduction diet. Now, the food sensitivity testing um, is definitely controversial. And I mean, in my opinion, there's no perfect food sensitivity test. Um, we just have okay options and much better options. But the um, the most common ones that you can, you know, just anyone can order themselves online, like Everly Well, that test for just the IgG. I honestly just, I don't feel that they're super helpful just because IgG can be harmful and it can actually be protective. So... <laughs> using an IgG test is really only going to contribute to even more frustration for someone who's trying to use those to figure out what they should or shouldn't eat.
0: Yeah, I hear often that people who take those kind of sensitivity tests are confused because oftentimes it's the foods that they eat the most.
2: Right. And, and that could, you know, there could be some truth to that because, you know, if we're eating broccoli every day and we're sensitive to broccoli, that's, that reaction is probably going to get worse, but it could just be that our body's developing IgG antibodies to that food because we're eating it frequently. So it could be you know, either one. And right. there are other types of tests that look more at the reaction that your cells are having to food rather than just specific antibodies. And I feel like those are, are a much better measure of your accurate food sensitivities. Although again, That's why we want to do an elimination and reintroduction diet so we can know for sure exactly which foods you're sensitive to.
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about how I think there's almost everyone at some time who struggles with a health-related thing, whether it's digestive or something they feel has a food trigger, has thought about an elimination diet or um, as I'm sure you know, oftentimes physicians will prescribe something like that, but then kind of leave people to navigate it on their own. Um, yes. So you tell me a little bit about it. It's always like someone's like, how am I supposed to stop eating literally 800 foods at once and then start yes. to put them back in? So I would love if you could talk about that.
2: Yeah. And it's funny you, you mentioned that because a lot of my clients will tell me that their doctor handed them a list of foods just to not eat. And it's mm. foods that they love and that they don't necessarily want to give up. So um, it can be frustrating to not have that guidance. But honestly, I mean, that's, that's what a dietitian is for, right? We're here to help you with the food side of stuff. I love elimination diets as a tool, um, but as a short-term tool. So one thing that can happen if someone's trying to do it on their own, which a lot of people are successful in, but some people get kind of stuck in that elimination phase because they're afraid to add foods back in, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. But that adding foods back in part is really important. um, It helps you figure out what your specific triggers are or food sensitivities are. So if you approach it in that way with the intention of, you know, adding foods back in, I think it can be really
0: helpful uh, for the right person. I think there's a lot of, Potential negatives to being stuck in an elimination diet where now we've kind of vilified certain foods that might actually not be triggering?
2: Yes, yes, definitely. It can kind of create some food fear because you, you know, it, especially if you're starting to feel better, if the elimination diet's actually working, and then you're really supposed to add back foods that may make you feel worse. I mean, that's hard. It's definitely important to add foods back in just for your relationship with food so that you can kind of get past some of that initial food fear and and start to have a healthier relationship with food. But it's also just good for your health overall to have a good diversity to your diet. It's good for, you know, getting all the vitamins and minerals we need and it's good for gut health. So, you really don't want to stay in that elimination phase for more than, you know, in my opinion, a few months. Right.
1: Do you yeah. ever see, and I feel like all of us have probably seen this in some capacity at some point, but people who swear they um there's a certain food that doesn't make them feel good, and it could be a food maybe that's been vilified by society or our latest diet trend, then maybe you do some testing and nothing is showing up for that do you Do you ever yeah. have that situation
2: happen, yeah? So this, honestly, it happens more with those food triggers, uh, those quote common migraine food triggers, which I I personally don't think there are any common food triggers. But that aside, some people, you know, one of the uh, common food triggers is chocolate, which is such a bummer. But not everyone's going to react to chocolate. I don't react to chocolate. A lot of my clients don't react to chocolate. But because it has such a stigma of being a migraine food triggers. sometimes it's really hard to get people to try it again which you know we we don't need chocolate to live so that's not the biggest deal
1: (laughs) but (laughs) yeah it does make life a lot more fun though exactly yeah
2: (laughs) and and the less restriction you can have in your diet the better in my opinion so I want to get people eating as many foods as as they
0: want
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: that was um, going to be one of my questions was, are there any popular triggers or sensitivities that can lead to migraine? But you're saying it's very individual. Pretty. Yeah, well, and
2: there there are. I mean, alcohol and caffeine are definitely, you know, everyone with migraine is going to react to a certain extent to those, well, drinks. Caffeine can be helpful, for migraine episodes, like it's in migraine or excedrin migraine. So it can have a a beneficial effect, but it can also cause caffeine withdrawal and cause symptoms on its own. So that's definitely a a factor. And then alcohol, of course, can trigger migraine. And there are some other, you know, like artificial sweeteners and MSG, those seem to be more common triggers. But again, it's always going to be individual.
1: And right. do you know, I know you mentioned, you know, chocolate being a bigger one. And to me, you know, things like alcohol and caffeine kind of make sense. But do you mm-hmm. know why chocolate has been something that has been labeled as a, maybe it isn't, but it's been mm-hmm. labeled as a big trigger?
2: Yeah, so that that's a really good question. Most of these foods that are considered common triggers contain certain food chemicals. So, For chocolate, I mean, one of them is caffeine, Uh but one of them is also tyramine. And tyramine is a food chemical that's seen as a common migraine trigger. Mm -hmm. Some other ones are histamine and nitrates and nitrites. So any foods that have these specific food chemicals in them could be considered a common migraine food trigger. Although I will say chocolate does not have a lot of tyramine in it. So it's probably more the caffeine in that one.
1: Or maybe the combo. Or, yeah, or the combo. So we know, you know, everything with uh, nutrition is so individual. And so if you are someone who experiences migraine, it's definitely best to work with someone one-on-one like Kelly. But are there any tips that you give, just common tips that could be helpful for anyone?
2: Yes, definitely. So there are some things that will be relevant for anyone with migraine, and that is to eat regularly. So really every three to four hours is going to be best for most people with migraine because we want to keep your blood sugar as steady as we can because blood sugar spikes and dips can be a trigger for a lot of people. And then making sure just to have balanced meals. So having protein with each meal, having some sort of carbs, fiber, fat, Those are all important. And I find that a lot of my clients just tend to forget protein because they're reaching more for some of those comfort starchy foods. So adding protein can be really helpful. And then this can be a little bit triggering for people with migraine because they're always told to drink water, but it is important to stay hydrated. I usually recommend around 75 to 100 ounces a day. It's a lot more than a lot of people may be drinking. So staying hydrated can definitely help. Those are really great tips. Thanks. Yeah, and oh, one other one: if they haven't already, then keeping a symptom journal can be helpful to track. You know what may be contributing to their symptoms, and at the very least, if it's overwhelming for them to try and interpret, then bringing that to their doctor or their dietitian or whoever they're working with, so that they can help them interpret it, can be really helpful.
1: And are those tips, um, as far as, you know, eating balanced meals and balancing your blood sugars, staying hydrated, are you saying that across the board for during a flare or not in a flare? Or is there a difference of maybe what you would tell someone to do, um, during a flare?
2: Yeah. And I love that you're using the term flare because that, that is a perfect description. Um, but I mean, having those balanced meals and eating frequently is going to be helpful anytime. So just in day-to-day life, it's definitely going to be more challenging. And when you're in a flare, especially for someone who has intractable migraines, so they are in an episode 24 seven, that's when having some strategy to these things and figuring out how to get in those calories and protein when you don't feel good all the time can be really helpful. So getting support with that and having some strategies that work for you can be really beneficial because it is so important to make sure you're getting enough calories and protein and water all the time.
0: Oh, I feel like I learned so much about what affects migraine over the course of this conversation, because good. I think for a lot of people, it just seems like something that people just have to deal with and there might not be all these different lifestyle adjustments so it's really interesting good
2: and honestly it, yeah it can feel like something you just have to deal with for someone who has migraine too especially if if they haven't been given these other options so it is there is a lot we can do outside of medication to support our ability to manage our migraine
0: yeah So I know that there's going to be some people who would love more resources and to hear more from you. So where can people find you?
2: Yeah, so I hang out most of the time on Instagram and you can just search the Migraine Dietitian. My username is at the.migraine.dietitian. And dietitian has no C in my spelling. so
0: <laughs> um, PSA to everybody, yeah, dietitian yeah.
2: has no C. <laughs> no C. Um, and then I also have a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, and my website, themigrainedietitian.com.
0: But those are all places to find me and learn more than you ever wanted to know about migraine. (laughs) Awesome. Yes, it's so informative. I've already been watching all of Kelly's stories and learning a lot just over the past couple weeks. (laughs) So we'll definitely um, put your Instagram handle in these episode notes too, just to make it real easy for everybody to be able to find you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much.
2: It was such a pleasure to talk with you all today. Anytime I can ramble about migraine, I am down.
1: (laughs) We love it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wellness Miss. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. We'll be dropping another episode next Wednesday with registered dietitian Ashley Kitchens about meal prep. See you then.